Hi, I'm Rabbi Pinchas Winston. I'd like to invite you to listen to my new show called Ask the Rabbi. Just email me your questions about Judaism, family life, Jewish mysticism, or even end times, and I'll read them on the show and answer them. Tune in every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 8 p.m. Israel Time. I hope to hear from you soon. Email Rabbi Pinchas Winston at pwinston at 36.org. That's spelled out, 36.org. Hello and welcome to Noid Nation's radio show. This is Adam Pinrod on Israel National Radio. I'm your host this week and raise away, so I'll be hosting the show solo. So we promised to talk about the election for you throughout the duration, come November and perhaps beyond. And so every week we plan on having something to say about the election. Well, this week I want to talk about what's probably the most important topic that we're going to discuss, and that's going to be the the economy. Uh, what is uh, President Obama's stance on it? What has he done for it? Is he going to fix it? Can he fix it? Has he fixed it? What's he done with it? What is Mitt Romney's plan? Well, we might investigate that in another show. But, you know, my stance is still unswayed. I'd rather see anyone else in the White House than Obama. Because why am I so high and high against uh Against Obama, well, it's pretty simple. I think the status of the country is something that we can look at as uh, as being a problem. We have, with the end of, of President Bush's term in office, we had the highest spending president. Uh, he spent $4.9 trillion over the course of his presidency, uh, and that's over the course of eight years. The bubble burst on the housing market back in 2007-2008. We have the bailout. These are part of the Bush legacy. Of course, a lot of that spending, a lot of the spend, Bush's spending had to do with the uh, two uh, wars, the one in Iraq and the one in Afghanistan. President Obama was, uh, of course, left to conclude the Afghanistan war and to uh, work on the uh, pullout of Iraq. So obviously that's where some of his spending come. What does the spending look like, Obama versus uh, Bush? Like I said just a while ago, Bush spent four point nine trillion dollars over the course of his presidency over the course of eight years obama has spent 5.1 trillion dollars over the course of three and a half years so uh, that's quite a bit more <laughs> if we were to, to if we were to, 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 to double that number we're looking at uh you know spending near over 10 trillion dollars by the end of uh of president obama's uh presidency and why would i double that number well it's pretty clear um, from uh, the Obama camp that not only do they not plan on uh, 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 enacting spending counts or even spending holds, halts, but actually they want to spend more money. They believe that they need to spend a little bit more money to get us out of this recession. So the uh, the solution to the recession, the solution to the American uh, people's problem is we're not spending enough money. We have to uh, spend money to make money. Well, spending money to make money works up to a certain point. It works so long as you have the money to spend. Um, it works so long as you're, you're, what you're spending your money on is a good investment. It works so long as what you're, the way you're spending your money is well thought out. It works so long as you understand that what you can spend is not limitless. Obviously, 
to me, uh, Obama doesn't understand this idea. I think this is a principle that is lost on him, that uh, he believes just in the way that he's talked to the private sector, to business owners, that he, he seems to believe that by you know waving a magic wand, they're able to just add jobs out of nowhere. Um, that's obviously not the case. So <clears throat> what we have here is what I like to call Obamanomics. We've entered an era called Obamanomics, um, this being a spending-type economic solution to problems. If there's a problem, let's throw some money at it. If a you know business is failing, if it's the right kind of business, let's throw some money at it. Let's spend money on uh, green technology that not only has not proved to work, does not work, and probably will never work given uh, given what research says. Of course, not that it's impossible to come with green technology, but in fact that investing in something that doesn't seem to have the possibility of being successful, like Solyndra. President Obama got into his presidency, had the power, backed by Democrats, to ask for and receive $862 billion to spend to stimulate the economy. The theory was, of course, that if you save or create jobs, if you spend money in infrastructure, if you spend money covering the cost of Medicaid um, and unemployment costs of states, that this will stimulate the economy. How? Well, essentially, if a person doesn't have a job, he can't spend money. Now, this is a similar idea, according to uh, trickle-down uh, economics or Reaganomics, but only uh, instead of a corporation um, having the money, uh, more money free to hire more people, more more people being hired, more jobs created, equals more money being spent per household, equals uh, more money everywhere. More money everywhere leads to, of course, additional jobs. But instead of the private sector spending money in the public sector, uh, spreading the money out around uh, states in crisis or needing extra help. Does it work? Does, has the uh, nearly $1 trillion or the $862 billion that Obama has spent for his stimulus package worked? Well, if we were to do a simple mathematic formula, Barring the uh, the need to go into complex economical theory and statistics and, and all that, but if we were to keep things very simple, we can say this one thing: over the course of his presidency, Obama has created a, a conservative, perhaps fair number, would be about three million jobs. Um, as not over his court, his presidency, but actually as a result of the stimulus package, the stimulus package has created three three million dollars. $3 million, it sounds like a really impressive number. It does. If you if you don't consider anything else, it sounds like a really impressive number. Wow, Obama, you've created $3 million. That's absolutely amazing. But when you consider in the light of how much we spent to create those $3 million, how much did we spend? We spent $862 billion. Okay, so what does that mean? How much money, dollars... To how many jobs do we spend? How much money does it cost to create or to save one job? If you do the math, $862 billion divided by $3 million, you come up with the ratio of 287,000 to 1. 
That means for every one job that was created or saved, we spent $287,000. Now, to me, this seems like a bad investment. If you're going to spend $287,000 to create jobs, I would think that you would look for a higher number of jobs than one. But, in fact, that's not what happened. We only have one job created per every $287,000 we spent with the stimulus package. We have not only that, not only that, but when you look at Obama's overall presidency, we've lost 1.37 million jobs. So that means that not, not only did we not create enough jobs with Obama's stimulus package, but we've actually lost jobs overall. With the $5.1 trillion that Obama has spent, we've ended up losing 1.37 million jobs. We have raised our spending to being about 24 to 25% of the gross domestic product. So that means one-fourth. Uh, um, basically, our spending is one-fourth of the money gross that this country produces. That's not a very good number at all. Not at all. So President Obama's Obamanomics, his, his concept for saving this country is to spend money. The theory, if I spend money, we'll make money. Does it work? Not the way he's spending the money. I don't think, I don't think we can say that at all. I think it's very clear that spending uh, $862 billion, the way he spent it, did not help the country. Can we blame this on Bush? Now, you know, whenever I see President Obama speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm actually starting to get a little tired of it. Because his tendency is to blame somebody. He plays, he, he blames someone other than himself. Not once has he done what a president or a leader ought to do, and that is to accept the blame, whether fair or not, upon himself and said, you know, things didn't go the way I thought it would, and I'm to blame. Or to say, you know, I thought spending more money would do the trick. It hasn't. I'm to blame. Or to say, you know, this is a tough problem. And uh, it, there's more to it than I thought. It's not an easy solution. It's not the easy solution I claimed it was in the presidential election when I made promises that at the end of four years um, or at the end of three years, <coughs> if you were not satisfied with the results of, of my presidency, you could fire me and get the next guy in here. That's what he told us. That's what he promised us. He promised us that we could replace him if he didn't do the job that he promised he would. He hasn't done the job that he promised that he would. According to Obama, at the beginning 2008, we can replace him and we can feel good about it. Obama 2012, is this what he, does he stand by that? Not at all. Obama in 2012 actually says, it's not my fault. I, I inherited this problem from George Bush. It's not my fault. The Republicans didn't give me what I wanted. It's not my fault. The Republicans have stood against me. It's not my fault. The American people have disagreed with me. It's not my fault. Well, a leader doesn't say that. A leader says whether it's clearly their fault or not, they take ownership of those that they lead, and they say, you know what, this is a mess. And um, I still believe I can fix the problem, but this is a mess. And Obama hasn't done that. Obama has instead utilized what's become his favorite weapon in his political arsenal called the blamerang. He throws that sucker out, throws his blamerang out every time 
a criticism can be leveled against him. And any real criticism, he laughs off as if it were a joke. Note his comment in his Friday um, speech that was supposed to, according to everyone's expectations, be Obama's unveiling of his economic plan to turn things around in this country. So during his speech, Obama um, uh, mentioned a guffaw that he made about the... uh, um, that the, the economy being fine or that it's doing okay. And uh, when he was called on it, he acted like it was a big joke. I made a mistake. It's not a big deal. But when you read and you listen to Obama, it wasn't okay. He Obama is living in a different place. He's not living in a world that he has to suffer the effects of, his, of what he's done as a president. Well, not the effects as... As far as economically, but I hope that everybody will agree that with this upcoming election, that he's going to suffer the effects of his bad choices and his his leadership or lack of leadership through the means of not being reelected. You know, I always bring this up. You know, and, and you know, in spite of having just discussed the concept of. Uh, Obama throwing blame around at other people. I think it's at the same time fair for us. We have to be leaders in our own way. That even if we're not leaders, we're not in charge of multi-million dollar corporations and we're not in charge of states. That we aren't uh, leaders uh, in the sense of uh, a political leader, economic leader, anything like that. We are leaders in our individual lives. And I think we do have to take responsibility for um, for some things. The fact of the matter is, is Obama, aside from his misguided understanding of, of how money is made, is not ultimately, <clears throat> isn't ultimately responsible in one sense. He is responsible in this sense, and this is what I'll tell you. If you have... If you're a regular person and you have an income and you have bills that you have to pay, you have to pay debt, you have to pay your electricity, you've got to pay your food, you've got to pay for a place to live. If you pay for these things and you find yourself in uh, a downturn economy, you find yourself where maybe you don't have a job where you're making as much as you used to, right? The solution to your problems is not to spend more money. The solution to your problem is not to go out and get a credit card to spend more money. The solution to your problems, one of the solutions, if we're talking naturalistically, the solution to your problem is to stop spending money unnecessarily. Find areas that you can cut. Sometimes you have to cut in areas that you don't want to cut, areas that make things a little bit scary. You have health care. You have insurance. Maybe you can't have insurance for a while. It's a sad thing. But what do you do? You don't have the money to pay for it. You can't go you go out and get a credit card, but now you've created more money that you have to that you have to pay somehow. But you don't have a job that allows you to do that. A normal person, when they're faced with a situation where they don't have the money to cover their debts, or they don't currently have the money to cover their debts, they look at what they do have. And they take what they do have and they try to use that to approach um, um, the situation. 
I don't have a job or I don't have a job that pays quite as much. What can I do? You start looking, you look for help from other people. Um, you turn to a shem. You, uh, you cut your spending. You're more careful with what you, you spend. You're more careful on, on, uh, on how you spend it. Okay, so maybe you, you have to eat, but you don't have to eat uh, hamburgers and steaks every day of the week. You have to cut back and eat potatoes, maybe. You've got to eat sandwiches. You've got to eat fruit. You can't eat. You can't live like a king anymore. You've got to cut back on the money that you spend. You can't afford to go out to movies. You can't afford to rent movies. You can't afford to buy movies. You can't afford entertainment in general. You can't afford uh, the health coverage you once had. You can't afford all the car insurance that you once had. You can't afford to have more than one car. It happens. You have to start. A normal person has to take stock of where they are and decide what is truly essential for me to get by in the situation that I'm in. And then that's what they do. The unfortunate thing is, is that the wealth of a government makes it seem as if, for some, there is no limit to the amount of money that I can spend. So just like a person, a government has a responsibility that when it finds itself in a difficult economic situation, it has to find a way to take what it has now and use that to get back to where it needs to go. And uh, that's it. That's the end of the story. If It doesn't take... You can't rely on getting loans to get you through it. It gets you through it in the immediate time, but you still got that bill you have to pay, unless you don't ever pay, plan on paying that off, and that's quite frankly against Torah. You borrow money, you owe money. So this is what I have to say. When I said earlier that we have to take a little bit of the blame, we have to be leaders, and we have to step up in our own personal lives, this is what I mean by this. A people deserves their leaders. We deserve Obama. We observe. We deserve Obamanomics, and uh, the blame that can be laid at our our doors, I think, genuine. We have to step up, and we have to be leaders in our own lives, and we have to <clears throat> change the way that we are in how we spend, but not just spending. You see, this is the great mistake of most politics political shows, analysis, what have you, is that the idea at some point is let's just address the problem of the way we're doing it. You're not functioning correctly in a naturalistic system. That in and of itself is the mistake. We are not in a system of nature. There is a our divine God, creator of heaven and earth, who exists. And the economic situation a company finds itself in, it didn't just arrive at that because somebody made bad decisions. It means God is behind the scenes pulling the string. God has determined that for whatever reason, it's necessary for that country to be in the situation that it's in. How do you change the the decree? Well, the first thing we can do is look to ourselves. How can we change ourselves? How can we change ourselves? Well, to affect the, the greater the greater community of, of, of America. Well, first we have to start with ourselves and look at our at how what we're doing with our lives. Are we living our lives correctly? If you're a Noahide, are you fulfilling the Noahide mitzvot? If you're a Jew, 
Are you fulfilling the 613? Are you taking care of those who are in need around you? Are you helping out family member who might need help? Are you helping out your fellow Noahide, your fellow Jew? Are you helping out your fellow human being? Are you repenting for your sins? Are you uh, taking stock of, of you know your own faults? God is sending us a message, and the message is, is that we need to change. So there is hope in change. And the hope is, is that we should hope that we can aspire to be better than what we are, and the change will come as a result of, uh, of Hashem accepting our petitions. But we have to do this willingly and earnestly. We deserve the leadership that we have. We should have an Obama in charge of this country. But we can change that. We can begin to have new leaders. Leaders that we can now deserve, but do good leaders. We can we can earn good leadership in this country. Whether they're Democrats or Republicans, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is is that we make sure that we as individuals become righteous and that righteousness will spread all the way up. There's a story about a rabbi who just got out of uh, out of yeshiva and he decides I'm going to change the world. So for many years he works to change the world. Nothing happens. He decides his plans are a little too grandiose so he says, I'm going to change the country that I live in. And he works very many years to accomplish this goal. After many years he concludes it was too big of a goal. I'm going to change my community where I live. He works very hard for many years and changes the community where he lives. Again, what's the result? Failure. Too big a problem. The rabbi finally goes, you know, maybe I can't change the world. Maybe I can't change the community. Maybe I can't change the country. But I can change myself. And so for many years, he works very, very hard on changing himself. And then finally, after years of struggle and he manages to change himself, he sees that not only did he change, but his community changed. Not only did the community change, but the country changed. Not only did the country change, but the world changed. This is what we can do. This is the contribution that we can make. We have a part in this where God expects us to do something, to work for a living, to have his income. But not just physical exertion does he require of us, but also spiritual exertion. He expects us to own up to our uh, to our own shortcomings. He expects us to take responsibility for our actions. He expects us to make changes in our lives so that our shortcomings of yesterday aren't our shortcomings of tomorrow. President Obama has had three and a half years to make changes at the top. He's not doing his job. He should be voted out of office. But at the same time, we should consider that we haven't been doing our job and uh, we should be voted out of office as well. But, you know, Hashem is merciful. He's given us an opportunity. And the opportunity is for us to change ourselves. And when we change ourselves, we'll become deserving real leadership of good leadership. I hope you've enjoyed today's program. I've enjoyed it. And we're going to bring Rabbi Katz in after this break. And we'll talk to you soon. Avram, what's that in the sky? Hey, man, I think that's a bird. No, no, that's a plane. No, man, it's super. You're right, it is a plane. That's not just any plane. That's an Aliyah flight. Whoa, I don't get on one. That's a great question. Hi, I'm Avraham Benismach. And I'm Michael Cohen. 
Join us every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Israel time for Aliyah Fever. We're going to help you make your Aliyah dream come true. I'm going back, I'm going back to Jerusalem. The place of my birth when I am I'm going back to Jerusalem. I'm on my way, I'm on my way, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. Hi, welcome back. This is Adam Pinard once again for the Noahide Nations radio show on Israel National Radio. Back from the break, and we're about to bring in uh, not only Rabbi Katz today, but for our second segment, we're going to also bring back uh, George Brock. And uh, But first up, we're going to have Rabbi Katz come in here. Rabbi Katz, welcome back to the show, and uh, take it away. Hi, and welcome back for another week of the radio broadcast in the Academy of Shem and Aver. Today, we're going to pick up on a topic that is really cutting edge and interesting in the realm of Shem and the Noahide world at large. In the Torah, we have a famous exchange in what could quite possibly be the most powerful Torah portion that exists in the five books of Moses, i.e. in Hebrew called the Chumash. Let's refer to this now as the Chumash. Uh, general term for the five books. In the Chumash, Parshas Yisro, the Torah portion of Jethro, the Jewish people are now reaching their climax after the book of Bereshis, or Genesis, has brought us to Egypt. We've come out of Egypt, and we are defeating the Egyptian Pursuit, we find ourselves at Mount Sinai, and there's going to be a revelation of the Torah as we know it in its form today. And that form today at Mount Sinai was dictated and structured not around seven commandments and not around 613 commandments. However, it was structured around ten commandments. The famous Aserah Sedibris, the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments were dictated on Mount Sinai. And the Torah is going to be predicated on those Ten. And thus we have a, a clear perspective of Jewish history. And there's an element of salvation and redemption on Mount Sinai. We have our famed... Midrash, that since the Jewish people have now reached their level of Mount Sinai, where do they come from? So we went through the book of Genesis, Bereshis. We went through Adam and the, and the offspring of the flood. And then we found ourselves saving the world with Noah and Shem. Shem coming off the ark and delivering the Torah 
for 400 years. Upon those 400 years, only Abraham accepted the Torah on, let's say, the level of, instead of a decline, on the level of an incline. For Abraham spawned an Isaac, Isaac and Jacob, Jacob, the 12 tribes, 12 tribes in the 70 souls, 70 souls that would descend to Egypt. Thus a proper nation guarding the level of Shem's Torah. Shem himself taught this Torah over to Isaac, over to Jacob, over to Joseph, and over to Judah. And here we have it. Everybody is now at Mount Sinai, even Shem. As we say that Shem had merged with Mount Sinai, as he had eaten from the tree of life in the time of Noah his father, and he went in a, in a semi-alive, semi-dead state of being, and waited at Mount Sinai for the giving of the Torah, and only upon King Solomon being anointed the king, however many years later, he found Shem in his state of being in Mount Sinai, re- relayed to him the essence of the Torah, the three books of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Shem was released. The Torah was established forever in the world, and a messianic age of a son of David was born. That's the quick history lesson of the Jewish people. And alongside the Jewish people was a Noahide nation, also developing from the time of Shem. At that time, when Shem went from the world, the focus of Torah was on the Jewish people. Yet we know that there were academies of learning in the world in a concealed fashion of Noahide. And when the Torah was about to be redeemed in the end of days, you're going to find a Noahide movement of Noahides coming out, being ready and prepared through their own individual timelines, ready to receive the Torah. Thus, before the Noahide nations can receive the Torah, fulfilling the prophecy, the Jewish people will be a light to the nations and the Noahides will pull on the tzitzit. We find ourselves in a microcosmic event on Mount Sinai. Moses and Jethro, Moshe Rabbeinu, and his father-in-law, Yisro. In Torah, there's something called Lefib Shuto, and something called Pshat. Pshat means the simple meaning. What is the Pshat of of a certain verse? That is the essential, simple meaning. Jethro was Moses' father in law. That's the Pshat. That is a simple meaning. It is what it is. It is what it always will be. He was his father in law. However, there's another concept called the Fipshuto. The Bible commentator Rashi comes to explain none other than the Fipshuto. The Fipshuto is the Bina or understanding of text. Much like a woman can be explained the Fipshuto according to its Pashut O, meaning according to its stripped fashion, that just like the Bina understanding in a woman, she may feel or act a certain way, yet it might not be the simple meaning. Yet we can relate to her or the understanding in a way that expresses the truth. This might not be the only meaning, but we can find an angle of truth 
from something called the Fipshuto. In the, the Tanakh, we have a, a 1700 year, the year 1700 t- Torah commentator, the Ramchal. The Ramchal explains that in certain passages, a, a, a man, for example, in the Torah by Mordechai and Esther, in the book of the Megillah, Megillah's Esther, it can be explained that Mordechai is an example, or in Hebrew, a Bechina of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, And Esther can be a, a Bechina of Hashem. Now, obviously we're not saying that Mordechai and Esther are God. That's obvious. But what the Ramchal explains is that just as Shem was a priest to God above, that Shem used names of God as, as levels of distinction, as character traits, meaning the name Yudke Vavke proper can actually be the Sphira Tiferet, beauty. Now, the actual Yudke Vavke, meaning God himself, even beyond the name, is not limited to any vessel or description. But the stripped fashion of the name correspond to the ten emanations above. For example, the name Kale could correspond to one level, Elohim another level, and these are not God himself, but rather names. And we have people synonymous with those levels. Abraham was synonymous with the name Kale, because Abraham is kindness or chesed. Kale relates to kindness or chesed. Thus Abraham and this name share in common the concept Kale, kindness, chesed. So the reason why we bring this about is to explain in the in the Torah portion Jethro or Yisro, Moses re- meets up with Jethro and Jethro tells Moses, Moses, what you're doing is not good. You'll become too tired by judging the nation. It's too much for you. The interesting thing about Jethro is Jethro arrives at Mount Sinai for the giving of the Torah and then he leaves before the revelation. Some say he converted to Judaism. Some say he did not convert to Judaism. And some say they don't know what he did. Now the giving of the Torah, the Torah must have inside of it the Torah applicable to Jew and Noahide. So if we were to look at the Lofib Shuto, what does Moses represent as an alone agent judging the nation? And what does Jethro represent as an alone agent against Moses? This is not the pshat or simple meaning. It's Lofib Shuto. And what we find out is Moses can be viewed as the quintessential Jew. Let's even call it the futuristic time of redemption Jew. When the Geula redemption will be around, there will be a Mashiach. And Mashiach is going to have to judge the people. Jethro represents the Noahide. The Noahide telling Moses, the Redeemer, it's not good what you're doing. You're going to get too worn out. Moses says, what do you mean I'm going to get worn out? Jethro says, it's too much for you. What's going on here is an exchange on a much deeper level. The whole Torah was given here. And they say that this was the formation of the Sanhedrin, the, the council of, of rabbis being formed. But if you look carefully, you'll realize it's not the Sanhedrin. That was formed with the 70 elders. So what exactly is this level of Sanhedrin that's not really a Sanhedrin? What it is, is Mo- Jethro is warning Moses, Moses, there's going to be a time when there's going to be so many people coming to you to clarify the Torah, you're going to have to make a body of anshichayel, men of vigor, men who fear God, men who are men, men who are of truth, 
men who hate money, to judge the people and give over the laws of the Torah. This is where we'll leave off this week. And next week we'll continue explaining how the Noahide nation fits inside Jethro, in that he did not convert, but maybe he represents the Noahide. Moses represents the Jew who's on the level of the Redeemer, and how the two work together to disseminate Torah in the world. That's all for this week, and next week we'll continue with this story and explain how the Fibshuto, not the simple meaning, but according to how we can understand the characters, the deeper message of how Torah goes out in the world. Thank you for joining in. I'm Rabbi David Katz. Till next time. Goodbye. Thank you, Rabbi Katz. And that was Rabbi David Katz from Tzvat, Israel, giving us the latest installment of the Torah of Shem. You can catch Rabbi Katz once again next week here on Noahide Nations, the radio show on Israel National Radio. And you can read more about Rabbi Katz's teachings and uh, maybe even hear some audios on NoahideNation.com. George, why don't you come on in and uh, let's hear what you've got to say this week. I'd like to thank Noahide Nations and Israel National Radio for allowing us to share Noahide teaching to the Gentiles everywhere. The teaching of the sages is taught to us by the rabbis. It's an honor to be here. My name is George Brock, and Jack McCarter will be assisting me with scripture reading. First, we always start off our session with uh, how do you minister truth to Gentiles, if you're a Gentile. As Noah hides, the water is already muddy. What you have to do is not get in there and jump around. But a little bit of Torah, not even spoken directly, will clear the waters. And we start with repentance. Can one be so right as to commit no wrong? Those who repent will regain their strength and they will restore their path. Destiny. To fulfill one's destiny, one must shatter the vessel to receive for self alone by choosing to become a vessel to receive only to share one's good. The path. To understand the divine path, one must sanctify a divine name, seeking always to reveal God's unity through oneness. Truth. Those who reject Torah waste their life's energy in a futile attempt to escape reality. Boundaries. To stay within the boundaries... One must stay in the light. Is it not better to seek the light one has been given than the darkness one will create? Those are aphorisms for this week. We are also going to start teaching Noahides the Imuna. Imuna is faith. A lot of Gentiles have a misunderstanding because they come out of Christianity where we were taught if things are going bad, then you're sinning or you're in some kind of sin. I know I used to minister to a lot of people from other denominations and churches because they couldn't go to their pastor because if they went to their pastor and, and they're having problems, then it's like they weren't believing or they weren't strong enough in faith. It, the Judaism teaches us that divine providence is everything that happens to us in life is the product of Hashem's will and personal intervention in our lives and we'll often refer to this as divine providence. Everything that happens to us in our life. Just like Job said to his wife, shall we not receive, if we receive God's good, should we not also receive the bad? The purpose of imuna is to tekun. It's kind of funny because when you try to keep the law, 
or the mitzvahs and so forth. This, it, a lot of that is done through self-discipline. All right, now we're switching and we're switching the energy, and we have to understand instead of blocking through trying to do self-discipline when God's trying to guide us as his children, then what we, we do is we're blocking that energy or that light, that, uh, that good he wants to share with us. In other words, when any time problems come up, if you try to handle the problem yourself, you're missing the whole point because God wants to show you through Imuna to build your faith up not just to build up your self-discipline because if you do that on your own try to do things on your own then you're really you're not allowing God to work in you because you're doing it yourself this is totally different when the problems come your way and they'll come your way God is trying to build up your immuno what's going to happen is he's going to bring situations to you so that you need to receive the first thing you need to do is he's going to show you the area that you need work in that's where the problems are going to come and what you want to do is repent through Teshuvah, acknowledge and recognize where you need your help, then ask for God's mercy. You're only human. Ask God not to change the pace, but to give you more imuna, more faith to deal with the situation and allow him to let you grow in faith in the different areas. Because the purpose of this life is not to rectify the body. The purpose of this life is to redeem the soul. As we tekun the soul, then you are accomplishing your goal in this life. So we look at tekun. What's tekun? It's completing one's soul connection. The cause of our suffering and hardships are in order to obtain a higher spiritual level or a connection with our soul. Immune of faith that Hashem, by way of divine providence, does everything for us, ultimately benefits us because everything is done for our good. What we need for our soul to connect, universal answer to all of life's questions are in Imuna, our faith. Purpose. Hashem created us for the sole purpose of getting to know Him. Our goal is to get to know Him, while, which is to understand everything in our lives is for our ultimate good, to allow Him to help us in our soul's correction. The message. When one ignores Hashem's personal message, Hashem is compelled to send louder messages, greater difficulties, to get one to cry out to Him. We are not in control. He is in control. And we need His help so we can grow. And the whole purpose, again, tycoon the soul. Our Noahide teaching for this week will be soulmate. What are the qualities of one soulmate? Well, a soulmate, one heart and two bodies. Candle and a flame, separate yet not separate. A soulmate will tell you of your strengths, but they'll also warn you of your weaknesses. When test comes, shifts of fortune, joy. A soulmate doubles one's joy and halves one's grief. But one has to be careful. It can take a moment to make a decision that can take a lifetime to deal with the consequences. One must control one's passion least it take vengeance upon you. The true value of love is not so much what you do with it, but with whom you share it with. It needs to be your soulmate. I used to believe as a Christian that all men had been condemned to hell because of the original sin of Adam. And the belief in Jesus had released man 
from this state of eternal damnation if you believe. What were the New Testament scriptures that uh, taught this? Well, let's look at Romans 5, verse 17 through 20. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now what he's saying here is that uh, the Torah, that the law, which is the antidote to sin, they're saying is what increases sin. Let's look at John 3 and verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So what this is, is we call this easy believism. All you have to do is believe that someone else did everything, and that that means that you have to do nothing. Uh, This would be like someone coming into my school and saying that they believe that Bobby Jones is a black belt. So I give them a black belt, too, because they believe that. They don't have to do anything to earn that. After we get into truth and we find out what the Torah says, let's look and see, are they really truths? They all have to be part of a whole, as we'll read in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 14. Be pleased when things go well, but in a time of misfortune reflect. God has made the one as well as the other so that man should find nothing after him. There's going to be opposites. One is the proof text, which is the Torah. So we have to go with the proof text. If someone presents to me a driver's license that says they're they're 21 and I have a birth certificate that says they're 16, I'm going to have to go with the birth certificate. Well, the Torah is the proof text. There are many punishments mentioned in regard to Adam and Eve. The earth was cursed, thorns and thistles grew. Man shall earn his bread by the sweat of the brow. Man shall return to the dust. Woman shall suffer the pain and travail of childbearing. The curse of damnation to hell, nowhere is it mentioned or recorded to Adam and Eve, nor to their descendants. Nor was such a punishment for being born relieved by Jesus' birth or coming. Nowhere does it say a righteous man shall suffer punishment in hell for the sins of the first man. Let's look at punishment. A punishment that occurs to mankind because of the sin of Adam, were physical, bodily punishments. One's body was given to him by his parents. And because they are mortal and die, so will their children be mortal and die. For such is the way of all flesh. The soul of man, which is given to him by his eternal creator, is not damned, but returns to the creator from which it came. The world that we live in is imperfect so that we can have free will. The world to come is limitless and perfect. Without imperfection, one cannot appreciate perfection. In the end, either by repentance or punishment, everything will return to complete perfection. Again here, we would like to thank you for the opportunity to share truth with you. That's our time this week for Noahide Nation's radio show on Israel National Radio. I was Adam Pinrod, your host. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week.